Our image for this series is Daniel in the Lion's Den, an illustration of people trying to take control and who is actually in control. This particular painting is by Henry Oswa Tanner, a man whose faith in God brought control to his work as a painter. Tanner's first painting to gain notoriety was called The Banjo Lesson, a painting that shows an old man teaching a boy how to play banjo. With that success, other people, and even for a short time Tanner himself, thought that he should be a genre painter, where all his paintings should always contrast age and youth. But Tanner is primarily known for painting biblical scenes. He refused to let himself be pigeonholed as a genre painter or even merely a religious painter. Also, because he was a forerunner to the Harlem Renaissance, some people thought he should have been working to define black American art. A lot of people tried to put their expectations on his work, and that is a form of control. But Tanner knew who he was. He was an artist, and he knew who God was. That gave him courage to stand against the expectations of others, even though some of those people that he took stands against might have had control of his financial future. For the next two weeks, we're going to move mostly away from Daniel to focus on his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They are in a world that's out of their control, but they have courage to stand against wrongful control because they know God and they know God is the only one worthy of worship. Our text today is Daniel 3, 1 through 18, and we're going to begin with verses 1 through 6. Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of all the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. A person who only worships God has courage facing authority. In the last chapter, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of a great statue with a head of gold. He was the head of gold. But his dream let him know that his kingdom, although great, would not last forever. 
Babylon would be replaced by other earthly kingdoms, which would be replaced by other earthly kingdoms and replaced by other earthly kingdoms. And eventually all kingdoms would end with the kingdom of God. He was told that that future is certain. But Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue that doesn't merely have a head of gold. His statue is all gold, from the head down to the feet. With this monument, he's declaring that his reign will not end. Babylon is the beginning and the end. And if God wants to establish his kingdom on earth, God will have to take it from King Nebuchadnezzar, if he can. The pride here is just immense. Nebuchadnezzar then brings all his leaders together to affirm all of this. All the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of all the provinces, they have to come to the dedication of this statue, and there they will worship the never-ending reign of Nebuchadnezzar. This worship is a command. Everyone must come, and when the music plays, everyone must bow down and worship. Now, you can choose not to, but whoever does not bow down and worship will be immediately executed by being burned alive. Following the rule of an authority figure is sometimes a key to success. College, for me, got so much easier, and my grades improved dramatically once I realized that all I really needed to do was follow the instructor's syllabus. The professor is the authority, and in the syllabus, they are to tell you exactly what they want from their students. If I, the students, do exactly what's in the syllabus, I will get a good grade. And it doesn't matter if I think I could give them something better. My best shot at an A is giving the authority exactly what the authority asks for. But in the case of a college professor, he or she has to put what they want in writing, in the syllabus. In my final seminary course, the capstone, our cohort had an instructor that really liked to shoot from the hip. We were meeting with him three times a day, every day for a week. For the first two or three days, every time we met, it seemed he was adding to or changing what he wanted for our final capstone assignment. And one of my friends came to me, and he was stressed out. He said, I don't know what I'm supposed to turn in, Paul. What am I supposed to do? He keeps changing things. And I said to him, there's no syllabus. We didn't have a syllabus. I said, turn in whatever you want. He can't fail you. And if you turn in anything and he doesn't give you an A, you can challenge it and win because there's no syllabus. And that made him feel absolutely relieved because in that case, the authority had not issued a legal command. Whether my instructor intended to or not, he had just been giving us suggestions so we face that authority with courage. When and how we face authority, whether it's religious authority, civil authority, school authority, or even family authority, uh, when, when that authority has given us a clear command, what do we do? 
What if that command is evil, not just a difference of opinion or conviction or suggestion? And what if the punishment for disobedience is severe? Daniel is not mentioned in chapter 3, but I think he may be present along with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and also not bowing. I'll tell you why that might be the case in our next point. However, all these people are all putting their jobs on the line and their lives on the line. Fear may cause me to worship the wrong thing. Worshiping the one true God gives me courage. Worshiping the one true God gives me the courage to stand. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah didn't fight. They stood. They did not live in a representative republic or a democracy. They couldn't change the law. They could either bow or they could stand. They didn't try to, to destroy the idol, even though they had examples of that from their scriptures, the law. Moses and the righteous kings of Judah destroyed idols. But our guys courageously just stood. Now, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. We happen to live in a representative republic. So if we have the opportunity to bring good laws to our society, of course I think we should do that. It seems to end slavery in the United States, we had to courageously fight. To end Jim Crow laws, people primarily had to courageously take a stand. We're not at this time at risk of being executed for our beliefs as Christians. So let's not even pretend like that's a threat for the church in the United States. What people are concerned about is freedom of religious practice and freedom of belief. That's what's on the line. Also, exemption from taxes could be on the line. But let's also remember that tax exemption is not something promised by God anyway, although it certainly is helpful. Remember, religious people fought to stop gay marriage, and in the end, we lost that fight. What if instead of fighting gay marriage, we took a stand for healthy, lifelong covenant marriage? There's also about to be a fight over a Supreme Court nominee. What if instead of fighting against abortion, we took a real stand for life, not just the lives of unborn babies, but also the lives of the poor, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the elderly, and the prisoner. See, a Christian can say black lives matter and not burn down a business, recognizing that black lives have not mattered in this country. And a Christian can also say all lives matter and not be a racist. Taking a stand for righteousness instead of fighting evil, takes courage because it may mean that I have to allow an evil authority to continue being evil while I do good. We leave it to God as the one who will judge authority. In the end, it's God that judges, not me. God will judge Nebuchadnezzar and God will judge the U.S. President, the Congress, the Supreme Court, and police departments. 
when God judges my works, God will not ask me, Paul, did you fight the power? God's going to look at my works and see if I prayed for those in authority. Did I do righteousness and love mercy and walk humbly with my God? The, um, the authorities are not the only influence in our lives and in the lives of people in our Bible stories today. So let's continue with Daniel 3, 7 through 12, which says, Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever, as you as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. A person who only worships God has the courage has courage facing authority and also has courage facing their associates there's an interesting show called brain games that my family likes to watch it explains um, human perception and also a little bit of psychology but mostly about perception there's one experiment that they do that is really interesting and a little funny They set up a fake office, and everyone in the waiting room of that office is an actor, except for one person that they send in. Now, in this office, every so often, there's a beep sound in the waiting room, and every time they hear the beep, all of the actors stand up for a moment and then sit down. Now, there's no signage that explains this. They just happen, and although it's very strange... Very quickly, the one person who is not an actor who has come into this room begins to also stand up at the beep uh, with everyone else. And here's where it gets really interesting. One by one, the actors get called out of the waiting room to go to their supposed appointments. But the waiting room gets refilled one by one with new people who are also not actors. And... Nothing about, they don't know anything about the beep sound except for what they experience when they come in. Eventually, all of the actors are out of the room and all the people in the experiment are in the room. And guess what? Every time they hear the beep, they continue to stand up. They don't know why they're doing it, but everyone else was doing it, so they continue to do it. It shows that few people have the courage to stand against the majority. Even if you didn't believe me before that King Nebuchadnezzar was setting himself up up in a face-off against the God of the heavens, 
the revealer of mysteries. Consider here that the language of the passage says, people of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. That sounds a lot like Revelation 7, 9 through 11, which, speaking of heaven, says this, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, along with the elders and the four living creatures. They fell face down before the throne and worshipped God. Notice in Daniel, though, although there are people of every nation and language that bow down and worship, the text does not say that everyone bowed down to worship. We know that at least three people didn't worship. It seems that the majority of people bowed, but some apparently didn't. Most people, I would imagine, probably didn't care whether the person next to them bowed or not. It was just a matter of what they were worried about for themselves. But there were some people that did care. Notice it says, some Chaldeans. So not all of them, not everybody cared, but some Chaldeans came forward to accuse the Jews. And they didn't accuse all the Jews. Some Jews might have bowed, but maybe quite a few stood. Who knows? It says they accused some Jews, specifically Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This was a targeted attack against people that had relatively recently been promoted above them. And these people that were standing courageously to worship only the God of the heavens, the revealer of mysteries. And this is also why I think Daniel may have been there. Daniel, as second to the king, may not have been required to bow. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar has publicly bowed down and worshipped Daniel. Daniel could be sitting right next to the king, who also doesn't have to bow. Daniel is also the head of all the wise men in Babylon. Daniel is untouchable. We'll see that proven when we get to Daniel and the lion's den story. So they can't get to Daniel, but Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these jealous Chaldean leaders, they can get these three men killed. And so they say, hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, these three Jews are not bowing to your reign like all the rest of us are. You know, our peers, our associates in our society and our churches are changing. Let's start by talking about our society. In 2004, when same-sex marriage first began to be a real issue in California, that, that's when it first began, began to become a real issue. And then in 2008, Proposition 8 passed, stopping same-sex marriage in California. A majority of not just Californians, but a majority of Americans as a whole were against same-sex marriage couples. 
But a Pew Research Center poll from May 2019 shows that now 61% of Americans support same-sex marriage and only 31% are against it. 39% of people who attend religious services at least once a week favor same-sex marriage. And the younger the generation, the more people are in favor. Boomers average 51% in favor, Gen X uh, 58%. Millennials, 74%. And in another study from 2018, found that 44% of American Christians believe that the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today, compared with 41% of American Christians who believe God's standards for sexual behavior still applies. It's hard to condemn homosexual sin when we don't purify ourselves from the sins of fornication, adultery, pornography, and divorce. The majority has already bowed to personal sexual desire over the idea of humans created in the image of God. Related to this, Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling is getting denounced because she says that a biological male is a man and a biological female is a woman, something that has been common sense and scientific truth for as long as humans have existed. It will take courage to stand for truth when everyone around us is bowing to a lie. And let's talk more about the church in the United States. Let's go back to that 2018 Lifeway study. They did research on Americans with, quote, evangelical beliefs. Now, I kind of say, quote, I asterisk some of this study's results because under LifeWay's definition of evangelical, a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness could call themselves evangelical. So the results may not be as bad as they report, but an evangelical Christian, this is how they define an evangelical Christian. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe, number one. Number two, It is very important for me to personally encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Number three, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sins. And number four, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Now, I concur with all those things, and those sound evangelical. The problem is, with that limited criteria, it doesn't ask what other things someone else also believes. And that's why Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses can affirm those things and yet not be Christian. So there's some problems with this study. But there are still two results that concern me, and I don't believe the inclusion of Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses account for this change in belief. First, the study found that 51% of those who called themselves evangelical in this lifeways broad sense of the word, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. And second, while 97% of evangelicals in their definition of that believe that there is one God, one true God in three persons, 78% of those believe that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. And folks, both of those are heresy. Jesus said in Luke 4, 8, 
It's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And John says in John 1.1 and 14, the eternal word of God was always with God and then became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son is the one and only God incarnated, not the first created. I cannot believe those lies and be a true follower of Jesus. And yet a majority of people who call themselves evangelical Christians in America believe it doesn't matter what religion a person is and that Jesus isn't eternal God incarnated. Yet despite how my Christian associates may go, I am called to create, create, uh, courageously worship only God. Jesus said in John 4.23, But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God wants me to be courageous in my worship of him. And we're going to end today with the response of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel 3, 13 through 17. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... Is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I have made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, We want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. A person who only worships God has courage facing authority, courage facing their associates, and courage facing the afterlife. Nebuchadnezzar is mad at this defiance. And he has Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah brought to him. They are addressed by their Babylonian names. Names where they have been named after the Babylonian gods. Nebuchadnezzar can't stand for their defiance. Their refusal to worship his idol weakens his rule. And it also weakens uh, his display that that his rule is eternal. Now, it's better in public perception if he can get them to bow to his statue. He probably also knows that these are Daniel's guys. 
Daniel is the one who recommended them to be governors. Daniel might be standing or sitting right there next to the king. If Nebuchadnezzar wants his reign to endure, he doesn't want to be killing his wise men. Wise men that are ten times wiser than everyone else. So King Nebuchadnezzar says, I'll give you a second chance. If you're ready, we'll play all the music again. And you bow down and worship my statue. But if you don't, I'll have to burn you alive. No God can save you from that fire. Iron melts at 1,510 degrees Fahrenheit. Babylonian furnaces could run as hot as 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Nebuchadnezzar was also known to burn Israelites. Jeremiah 29, 21, and 22 tells us what happened to the false prophets, Ahab and Zedekiah. It says, This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of Koliah, concerning, and concerning Zedekiah, son of uh, Messaliah, the ones prophesying a lie to you in my name. I am about to hand them over to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and he will kill them before your very eyes. Based on what happens to them, all the exiles of Judah who are in Babylon will create a curse that says, May the Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah courageously face the afterlife. They say, There is no need to play all that music again. They will not bow. They believe the God of the heavens, the revealer of mysteries, can save them from the fire. But even if they die in the fire, they will still be saved from Nebuchadnezzar. They worship only God. Have you ever had a standby ticket for an airline flight? It can be a nerve-wracking experience not knowing if you're going to get on the airplane or not. My dad worked for an airline for a while, so I got these standby tickets. And the first few times I did it, I was really nervous. There were a couple of times that I didn't get on a flight. But over time, my dad taught me how to pick the right flights, or sometimes he would even pick them for me. So I was confident after that that I wouldn't be left at the gate. Um, even though, quite often... I might be the last person to board the flight. I was taking a trip with my friend Daniel, and my dad had given us standby tickets. Now, I had talked to him, and he had assured us that we would get on the plane. But Daniel, my friend, had never flown standby before. So everyone's getting on the plane, and they haven't called our names yet. Um, they have called all the names of the other standby passengers and they've gotten on the plane and we're still sitting there. Actually, I'm sitting there. Daniel's standing and he's nervous. He wants to get on that plane. And I said, just relax. This is how it works. We're getting on this airplane. They finally call us up and the desk person says, I can't sit you together, but I have one seat in first class and another in business class. I told Daniel, you take the first class seat. I've had the opportunity to sit in first class before, and he hadn't. 
Now, while I couldn't have been 100% sure that we would get on that airplane, I knew the reason why it was taking so long for us to get on the airplane. It was because they were doing what they could to save the best seats for us. They sat everybody else in the cheap seats and were saving the good seats, the best ones they could get for us. What if taking my stand to worship only God means I lose my seat? I lose everything. What if I lose my church's tax exemption? I lose my freedom of religious practice. What if I lose my freedom and get put in jail? And it doesn't even have to come from authority. What if someone kills me because they believe all Christians are hate-mongering, intolerant, bigoted, hypocrites, and they believe the world would be better without me? In Matthew 10:28 and 16:25, Jesus says these words. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And he also says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. See, it's better to endure the fire of a Babylonian furnace than the fires of hell. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they didn't know if they'd be saved from King Nebuchadnezzar, but they knew they were going to be saved. They knew they were saved. Not everybody has that assurance. After John Wesley had been preaching for several years, someone said to him, Are you sure, Mr. Wesley, of your salvation? Well, Wesley answered, Jesus Christ died for the whole world. Yes, we all believe that, said the man, but are you sure that you are saved? Wesley replied that he was sure that provision had been made for his salvation. But are you sure, Wesley, that you are saved? And that went like an arrow to his heart. He had no rest or power until that question was settled. Today, I want you to be sure. There's a link in the show notes to the first step in our church's discipleship pathway. That first step is faith. I would love for you to read what's there and watch the videos. I think if you go through that, you will understand what it means to have assurance of salvation. And you can have it for the first time or be assured that you already have it. Either way, please let me know what you've decided. You can make a comment in the show notes or um, get on the online connection card. Takes courage to stand alone. I've been a member of the Oakdale Area Chamber of Commerce for almost as long as I've been pastor of this church. There are only a few nonprofits in the chamber currently, and right now I'm the only active pastor as a member of the chamber. Pastor John Larson is there, but he's retired from full-time vocational ministry. Other pastors and priests have been invited. I've invited them myself, but they chose or choose not to participate. Now, our chamber is full of good men and women who not only want to have successful businesses, but they want to see our community thrive, and they do 
or actually I say we do because we do this together, we do great benevolence work. I don't know what each of the people that are members of the Chamber of Commerce believe nor their motivations for the work we do as a chamber. I do know that some of the people are Christians, but really I only know for sure why I'm there. I'm there because I love and worship God. God loves people, therefore I love people. There have been many times I've felt like Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah standing alone in a sea of people who, for all I know, may be worshiping money or good works while I stand there worshiping God and wondering if it matters. Then, just last Thursday, October 1st, 2020, for the first time in the seven years I've been there, the president of the chamber comes to me before lunch and says, Pastor Paul, will you pray for us before we eat? Now, I know that took courage for him, from him. In spirit and in truth, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I worship God alone. But I'm never alone. Let's pray from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Every day and every night, they communicate the knowledge of God without words to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. As humans, we find the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. These things are more desirable than gold and sweeter than fresh honey. Lord, cleanse us from our hidden faults and keep us from willful sins. Cleanse us. Let us only be ruled by you so that when we speak the words of worship that the heavens declare silently, that worship will be acceptable to you, Lord, the rock and our redeemer. Amen. As you reflect on this message today, think of one thing that resonated with you, one thing that may have challenged you, one thing you want to learn more about, and, of course, one thing you will do based on what you have heard. And today, I'd like to leave you with this benediction, this blessing. May the one who sent his son with power to save from guilt and darkness and save from the grave, whose ways are mercy and whose ways are truth, may he never stop doing you good. May he inspire you to fear him so that you will never turn aside from him.